Father, we come now to your word, and we are excited to hear from you once again. We do believe that these words have been ordained for us here today, that the, the words that we are to read and study are not dead words. They live. They're living words through the, the Spirit of God even here now in our midst. We thank you for the way that you've chosen to work through a book, through your word that lives. We thank you that we can open these words and have special revelation from you, that we can know you for who you are more clearly, to see you in a, in a more complete way, not fully as someday, but, but more completely and truly. And Lord, I would pray that as, as, as we look at you, we would also discern who we are, that we would see our need, our lack, and find you more than sufficient for all those things. Show us the gospel as well today. We know that every page points us there, points us to your son, Jesus, in all of his goodness and gift to us by your love. Teach us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come today in the gospel of Luke to chapter 10, verses 25 to, uh, to 37, and it's a familiar passage. And one of the things I would just say about familiar passages is you have to be more purposeful with familiar passages. The Good Samaritan, for example. Most of us have heard at least some version of this story, the Good Samaritan. Some of us have heard this story countless times throughout our lives as we have come up in the church, which makes it all the more important that we dial in. I think there are special things that are awaiting us in these verses, but I would say this. There are two very different ways to preach these verses, and I want to illustrate that for you today as we draw to the, the end of the sermon. I want you to see a very, very different way to handle these verses, and I think probably in our day that would be the inclination of a lot of the times that we've read this and heard it preached. And so I want to make sure that we do our best today to lock eyes with the text and go where Jesus intended these words to lead us as we share in this together. I titled the sermon, Lavish Love. And before we begin in verse 25, I want to go back because the, the flow of this passage is very important. Come back in Luke chapter 10 with me to verse 21b in your Bibles. You'll see Jesus just overflowing praise to the Father. He's glorifying the Father, and he says this, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The, the things of the kingdom, things of salvation and glory and light and life, Jesus rejoices in the Father's absolute sovereignty as he moves in the ministry of those that have been sent out to preach and proclaim and to heal and to cast out demons. They come back rejoicing. And what does Jesus do? He rejoices in the Father's work through them. Specifically, that this work comes in a way that is unexpected that this is a work of God's grace, such, such was your gracious will. It's not those who are most learned who see these things clearly. It's not the wise and understanding 
who see these. In fact, many times, the Lord chooses to hide them from the wise and understanding and to open the eyes of, as it were, little children who come in faith. Hmm. You know, if you think about it, the apostles, outside of the apostle Paul, the rest of the apostles were largely just backcountry guys, you know? Just, these are tradesmen, fishermen. They, they weren't even from big towns. They, they were just normal dudes that Jesus called out of their trade to come and, and be the, the foundation stones of the church. That's exactly what the Father delighted to do. He turns it upside down. Not many of you were wise, according to the world. God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise, what was weak to shame the strong. So it's with that in the backdrop, really just ringing in our ears, that we come to verse 25. Luke wants us to be thinking in that category before we even read the the first part of this section. So now let's go there and see how this unfolds. I, I titled this on your sermon notes, the back of your bulletin, you can fill that in, a calculated question. This is a calculated question. Verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Luke wants us to to feel this, okay? He begins, anytime you see Luke begin with this word, behold, this is an interruption, a surprise, a moment, all of a sudden, as, as Jesus is teaching, a lawyer, a wise and learned one, stands up, interrupts the flow of Jesus' teaching, and says, Jesus, I have a question for you. You see this? You feel this? This is a bold move. This is, in some ways, e- even rude. He, 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 he interrupts the teaching, and he, he gets Jesus' attention, and he asks this question, okay? Now, this is a lawyer. This is a man who's, who's Mind is wired in law. He knows the law of the land. What is the law of the land? It's it's the law of God. A Jewish lawyer, he pays attention to the letters of the law. He knows what he's after. It's a calculated question. He's seeking to trap Jesus, to trip him up. He wants to corner him, or at least, if nothing else, humiliate him. This is his goal. And he asks this question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what's interesting is you get a bit of a feel for what topic Jesus is teaching about by the question. This probably doesn't come out of left field. It probably comes off of a thought that he has, and in that moment, he stands up and he asks this question. It's an important question, is it not? Eternal life. Now, let's just agree here. According to Scripture, we all have eternal life in, in the sense that we will all live forever. There is everlasting life that everyone who has a soul will have. It, it is not in question. You will live forever. The question is not the nature of the length, but the kind of life it will be. Will it be et- eternal life, as in blessing and bliss and enjoyment and satisfaction and delight? Or will it be eternal torment, judgment, and wrath, and suffering? That, that's the reality here. 
There are only two places that human beings who have a soul will spend eternity, heaven or hell. And so this question is a very important question to consider. It's a question that should be on our minds regularly, not just at funerals, right? It should be on our mind all the time, every day. Where am I going? Because if in Christ you are certain and sure and fixed upon that future, you will live different today. It has everything to do with how you think about these days, these decisions in this short little life that will issue into an endless future either with God in blessing or with Him in all of the ways you would like to not be with Him, judgment and wrath. Why is the man asking this question? Is he concerned about his own soul, this lawyer? Well, we're cued here because Luke tells us that he, he wanted to, to put him to the test. He was, he was seeking to... Uh, to find a way to, to test Jesus, to see what he was going to say and maybe trip him up. He's playing fast and loose with his eternal future. You see how dangerous this is. He doesn't feel the weight, the significance of a question. He is asking Jesus. Think of this. This is God himself incarnate. The opportunity this man has but instead, in his own pride and his own goals, he's trying to trip up Jesus with the topic that he needs more than anything. You feel the, the context of the Good Samaritan kind of playing out? This is big. This is important for us to feel the weight of this. So, Jesus responds with a brilliant and very rabbinical Jewish response. Jesus and gives an interesting answer. Verse 26, he said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it, Mr. Lawyer? And the lawyer answered, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This lawyer is on point. That is a great answer. That is exactly the answer that Jesus would point to. Hmm. This comes from two different passages in the Old Testament drawing together the sum and fulfillment of the law. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 is love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Leviticus 19, 18 points us to the expression then outward, love your neighbor as yourself. Right on. It's an excellent answer. It speaks to the nature even of the Ten Commandments. I remember going through the book of Exodus together a few years ago and seeing how the, 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 the Ten Commandments even themselves can be broken into two parts. Commandments one through four can be summed up in our love for God. This is the vertical interaction in our relationship with God, right? The commandment number one, have no other gods before me. He is to be preeminent in our heart and our affections. No other gods. Number two is no idols, no, no self-made forms of worship. Worship as He directs. No replacement gods, lowercase g's, allowed in our life. 
Number three is revere, regard, respect my name. The name of the Lord is to be cared with and treated with with respect because he is God. Number four is his day. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Set it apart. I've chosen a day and I've set it apart. You are to, this is our love for God functioning. It's not just duty. It's delight. You feel this? We obey these commands from the heart or we don't obey them at all. It's love at the core. But then you go to the final six commands and in number five you find uh, that we are to honor our father and mother. And all of a sudden, this vertical love finds an expression horizontally, outward. Honor your father and mother. And then, don't commit murder, okay? And then, let's see, number seven, don't commit adultery. Number eight, do not steal. Number nine, do not bear false witness. Number 10, don't covet. All of these are horizontal expressions of what begins in our vertical love for God pushes outward to our neighbor. So you sum up the law in that way. Love God and love others. Hmm. Now let's just consider this. Love God with some of your heart and soul and strength and as much of your mind as you can allot during a very busy week. You know, I mean, there's so much going on. Here is the killer. It's the reoccurring word, all, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Do you do that? Do I do that? No. no we, do, we, we don't do that. Now, all these I have kept from my youth, the rich young ruler says. The lawyer would probably respond, hey, love God, no problem there. I'm good. I'm I'm in. That's not true. That is a problem because the word all meets us in our lack. We, We don't do it. We don't do it perfectly. And if we can find our way through the alls, then we come to this, love your neighbor as yourself. And we guarantee that we fall short there, don't we? Love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer responded, or Jesus responds to the lawyer who gives his answer, and and Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. (laughs) Do, Do that, what you just described, go do it, and you'll have eternal life. Hmm. Now, is Jesus suggesting a works-based salvation here? Is Jesus suggesting that the law can save? Is he saying that there is a way for us to be good enough to earn eternal life from the Father? He knows that no one can do this, including the lawyer. That's his whole point. Go do this, and you'll live. Hmm. Now who's being tested? (laughs) Jesus is brilliant. If you come to Jesus and you try to corner him and trip him up, get ready. It doesn't work. All of a sudden, the lawyer has, has been kind of humiliated by his 
proud attempt to humble Jesus, and Jesus turns the door. He answers his own question, and Jesus is just like, well, you kind of know the answer. Just go do it, man. Like, you didn't have to ask me. You know. The problem is, is you're not doing what you know. Hmm. Now, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Why would he feel the need to justify himself? That's the question we have to ask. Why is it that he feels this, this quick question come? This is not a calculated question. This is a spontaneous, just blurt out. He feels guilty. He falls short and he knows it. He doesn't love this way. And so he seeks to justify himself. And I imagine as others are looking on to save face somehow, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus. This is as if he's saying, how many people does this really apply to? I mean, where do you draw the line? This, this can't be that everyone I'm to love as, my, as myself. How far should this love go? This is all the setting for the parable of the Good Samaritan, the story that Jesus makes up to tell this man in such a way that will illustrate his point. All of this matters. And sometimes we, we will come to a story, tell the story, and forget the context, forget to set up the exchange. That makes all the difference for how we understand what Jesus is saying here. So let's dig in now. The shocking illustration, verses 30 through 35, the Good Samaritan. Jesus replied, verse 30, a man... He doesn't say who this man is, doesn't get any, any detail. We assume a Jewish man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Okay, so we got to stop here. We, instantly, wherever Jesus is at when he's teaching this, he transports his audience and all of us together to the Jericho Road. We have to put ourselves there in the story. Okay, if this was going to happen, what would it be like? It's not like downtown Ferndale. If you can see this, uh, we're talking the road to Jericho was 15 miles long, is to this day. You can still hike it if you have the right permits. Uh, it drops 3,400 feet, and it's about an eight-hour hike. It would take you a full day of hiking uh, and if it's hot, probably a little longer than this because you'd have to stop in the shade. It gets so hot in the Judean wilderness between Jericho and Jerusalem. 15-mile hike, 3,400-foot drop. Now, this, this, this man was going down. So down, Jerusalem is high, Jericho is low. He's going down, down this trail to Jericho from Jerusalem, and he falls among robbers. Now, Look at the, uh, the background here. Let me point this out. This is the Jericho Road. It's not like I-5, okay? This is, think, trail. This is the road to Jericho, right along this edge. In fact, you can see a, a mule or something. I don't know what happened to that guy. Maybe he fell. Uh, hopefully not. But this is a fairly treacherous path, and there's places along here that are very steep, and Notice up here, see this cave? See these caves? There's caves all along here 
where robbers in this day, thieves, would hide out and wait for the targets of opportunity as they innocently passed beneath them. They would storm down, beat the people up, leave them for dead, or kill them, take all their stuff, and, and, and hide out. Now, sometimes they would beat the people up, leave them half dead, and go wait for someone to come and help them. And then they would do the same for the helpers. This is just old-school terrorism. Hmm. The Jericho Road. It is a very small road in places. Now, there's, there's a few places I saw that, that widened up a little, but we're not talking a large, heavily traveled, even wagon trail. It's just it's a small path. Very hot, very dry. Um, although the shepherds could do okay with grazing in the, the greener pastures up in here, uh, in that, but you're climbing if you're going from Jericho up to Jerusalem. You're descending if you're coming the other way. Here's a, another picture I thought was fascinating. Look at the, the trail. This is a tour group hiking the Jericho Road. I mean, standing side by side with someone in a lot of this trail is impossible. This is a one-man kind of trail, the Jericho Road. So here we are. The man is laying, helpless, um, he's stripped of his clothing, and he is bleeding, and he is half dead. Now, I, I say this to, to just bring this to point. Jesus wants us to understand, unless somebody does something, this man's going to die. He is helpless. He cannot save himself. He can't move. He can't get himself out of this situation. He is dazed and dying. That's the situation we're in. It's hot it's a mess. Now, by chance, Jesus says, a priest. Yes, good. A priest, right? He was going down that road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Now, just stop here with me. If the trail <laughs> is like that, and the man is laying bloodied and half dead, how do you pass on the other side? You come to the man and you, you do everything you can not to touch him, and you step over him, and you keep walking. That is the only way to pass on the other side, unless somehow you're going to rappel down and crawl up and find a trail. It's, it doesn't work that way. So much of the trail is just like this. This man is purposefully stepping over and passing this man. Well, okay, so the priest didn't work out. Why would the priest not stop? Well, um, love is lacking, right? I mean, there's a lot of reasons we could give. The ultimate reason is he does not love. Well, if he touches a bloodied man who's half dead, he is unclean, and how's he supposed to be a priest? Or he's thinking to himself, what an inconvenience. I'm supposed to be here by dinner. If I stop and do this, I'm not going to make it. I, 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 I. Love your neighbor as yourself. Which is winning there? Love for self wins. Done. I choose me. I step over. I keep going. I make it to dinner on time love for self. That's why he didn't stop. Well, good news. A Levite is coming 
down the trail, comes around the corner. Maybe the man lays there and he sees, oh, I'm saved, a Levite. Here he comes. He came to the place, he saw him, and he did the same thing. He passed by on the other side. Now, a Levite was not a priest. He wasn't in the line of Aaron, but he was uh, very much in the service of the temple. So he would have known the law. He would have known and had his heart tug on him when he saw this man hurting. And he decides, you know what? No, no, no. Step, step, pass. Self-love wins out. It's love for self that wins in both of these cases. Ironically, any desire to protect their righteousness by avoiding contact with this man is is lost because of their hardness of heart you think the priest and the levite oh i can't be unclean right i have to protect my own cleanliness for my function and my duty in the temple that's already lost because of a hard heart letter of the law or the heart of the law. Unrighteousness wins out for the priest and the Levite. Now, typically these stories would be told in threes, and so as Jesus is telling the lawyer and the people are listening in, they're, they're probably thinking, okay, well, no surprise there, right? The, the uppity uppities passed by, thought of themselves, but how about one of us, right? A commoner, a Jewish commoner. That's who it's going to be who saves the day, Right? Jesus continues. But a Samaritan. Whoa, 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 whoa. What? Did he say that? What? It's the murmur. I can't just imagine murmuring, grumbling. No, 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 no. Where's he going? He said Samaritan. Jesus continues. Samaritans were hated by the Jews. As we talked a few weeks ago, they were seen as compromisers. They were seen as those who mixed in with with other races and compromised the bloodline. They had replacement worship. They had all kinds of of theological compromise. They rejected parts of the text. They were heretics and half-breeds, and we have nothing to do with them. And here's the, uh, the, the ironic thing. The Samaritans felt the same way about the Jews. They hated one another. You've got to feel that. And Jesus just brings it in full. A Samaritan, as he was journeying, came to where this man was, laying, bleeding out, dying. And he saw him, okay? So did the priest and the Levite. Look what happens next. This is Jesus' point. He had compassion. Where does it start? In the heart. It begins in the heart. He sees the man and he feels love. He loves. And what does he do? From the heart, he moves. He went right to him. And then he begins to work. He bound up his wounds. Well, how do you do that? The man hardly had any clothes left. He took his own clothes, ripped them up, and began to bandage up the wounds from his own materials, his own clothing, his own provisions. He poured his own oil and wine to help with the wounds and cleanse and then put a kind of a soothing balm on these these bleeding places and these injuries. He set him on his own animal. 
They carried him and, and took him to an inn and began to take care of him. So he, 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 he didn't just do a quick patch and be like, okay, someone else is going to take care of you. Hey, I'm a Samaritan. You know, you probably don't even want my help. No, that didn't matter. That's out the window. I'm going to take you. I'm going to bring you to an inn. And I'm going to care for you. Note this. And the next day, how long did he care for this man? All night. The man was in agony. There's no Tylenol, right? He's giving him food and water. He's helping this man, probably giving him from his own clothing. He's clothing him. He's taking care of this man all night long. And then the next day, he took out two denarii. That's 24 days' worth of food that can be purchased with two denarii, okay? And he gives it to the innkeeper, and he says, listen, I'm going to continue on my journey, but I'm coming back. While I'm gone, take care of this man. Whatever more you spend on nursing him back to health, I will pay. I will repay when I return. So he doesn't even just leave him there. He goes on to his trip does his business, and then plans to come back and make sure this man is up on his feet. This, my friends, is lavish love. Lavish love. Unexpected, completely inconvenienced in his own mind. He, he, he goes out of his way to help this man. Lavish love. It's self-forgetful love. So let's just dispense with this silliness that you may have heard that in order to love your neighbor as yourself, you have to love yourself more. That is hogwash. No one in this room struggles to love themselves. That is what comes naturally to sinners. We are called by God to a self-forgetful kind of love. A, a love that says, I choose you over me. I meet your needs before I meet my needs. That's not natural. That is foreign to our inclinations. We are inclined as sinners by default to choose ourselves. My will, my way, my comfort, my timeline, me. No radio station host, no self-help preacher who's trying to sell books, no snake oil salesman should be able to convince you otherwise. Self-love comes natural to sinners. It is not our problem. Our problem is we are not inclined to love others as we are naturally inclined to love ourselves. We are called to a blessed, loving, lavish self-forgetfulness. Friends, this is good in our day for us to just be confronted by. Sometimes on Facebook, it just feels like self-promotion, self-obsession, selfies to no end. What is our goal on Facebook? I would encourage us all together to shine in a self-forgetfulness and a Christ-focused exaltation. What can I do this week to forget about me 
and to lock eyes with him and those that God brings across my path who are my neighbors. Every interaction is an opportunity. Now, there's an unfinished story here. I feel this way as I, as I get to the end. Come with me. An, an unfinished story, verse 36. Jesus says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer responds, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. <laughs> oh, this is so intense. The lawyer can't bring himself to say the Samaritan. He can't even say the words. He just says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise, which is basically saying, go be like the Samaritan. Lawyer. Now, these were words of love that Jesus spoke. Th these were words of truth that Jesus gave this man who was so locked up on his own righteousness. He was so filled with his own pride that he would treat Jesus in such a way and try to trap him in this, and then he was exposed in love. Jesus spoke these words. So my question is, how did this man respond? Okay, we don't know. We're, we're not told. This is the part that I wonder. How did the lawyer leave that day? Did he leave broken, repentant, aware of his absolute deficiency to love like that? Or did he walk away and say, whatever, Jesus, that's impossible. Forget that. I'll, I'll do my own thing. Did he even remember Jesus a year or two later? We don't know. Maybe Someday in heaven, we'll bump into a man and he'll say, that's me. I was that arrogant, proud lawyer who thought he could put Jesus to the test and he humbled me graciously and showed me what love actually was. Maybe. Here's a question for us then. How should we respond to this story? There's one way to preach this sermon that would conclude with this. And frankly, I think this happens way too much. Way too much. Here, here's, here's how some would land this, this sermon. Hey, go be a good person. Right? Go be like the Samaritan. Go be a good person. If that's our conclusion, here's what we do. We all go to hell. Because we can't do it. We can't. It is not in us naturally to love like Jesus just laid out for us to love. We can't do that. We are selfish, self-absorbed, self-inclined, sinners, rebels. Ironically, if you really think about it, you ask the question, who are we in this story? We are not the Samaritan, even. We're that guy. We are lame, bloodied, helpless, and hopeless on the trail. 
And if someone doesn't save us from our sin-sick condition, we are doomed. We cannot save ourselves. This is the other way to teach this sermon, these words. And I think this is what Jesus is, the whole point, he's pushing us to this. What is the goal of the law? Is the law to show us a path to work ourselves into salvation? Absolutely not. But the law is righteous. It is good. So why does the Lord give us so much law? There's two reasons. Number one, the law teaches us about the holiness of God, the standard of perfection by which He establishes the bar. He is good. He is righteous altogether. He is holy and He is worthy And here's the second thing the law teaches us to do. Recognize how we are not. The law shows us our lack, our need, our unrighteousness, our total inability to be holy as he is holy. That's the purpose of the law. That's the goal of the law. Go and love this way. We should respond with, I can't can't do that. And Jesus would say, that's exactly right. That's why I'm here. Because I can. And only I can. We must be rescued by Jesus. We're laying here helpless, hopeless, frankly, according to the New Testament, not just sick and wounded, but dead. Dead in our sins unable to save ourselves. We're not Lazarus scratching at the wall trying to get out of the tomb. We are Lazarus four days dead in the tomb. We need Jesus to come and say, come forth. Follow me. Trust in me. Let me and all of my righteousness and all of my work meet you in your absolute desperate place. Let me love you. And watch what happens. The transforming power of the gospel takes sin-sick, selfish, self-absorbed sinners like me and like you, and it changes us by His love. He loves us such that He would die while we were still sinners, rebels, haters of the light, He died for us to rescue us. And then he says, now go love. See this? Now go love. Listen to the words of 1 John. We love because he first loved us. That's where it begins. That's where the gospel meets needy sinners. God does us no favors to tell sinners to go and do something that they cannot do. He tells us that to show us our absolute need, and then he says, look at what I've provided. We love because he first loved us. Who do we love? We love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. More and more each day, by his power, by the change of heart from stone to flesh, from hard to soft, we've given a new heart to love God, to delight in his commandments, 
to love His glory, His holiness, His radiance. And from that place, we go. We go out into the world. We love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Why? By your love for one another and the way we love the lost, those in the margins, those who are hurting. Hmm. Love for God and love for others. They flow from the gospel. Don't ever divorce that. We have empty moralism if we don't begin with Christ and transformation from the inside out. A new heart. This is our call. Here's the thing. God has given us a litmus test of our love for Him. The litmus test of our love for Him is how do you love one another? Does your heart move, break, stir, soar in this horizontal relationship? When you see a need, what happens in you? That is a litmus test for your love for God. And it's convicting. We have it in Christ. We have this love. We, we do love because he's loved us first. But my longing in my heart is more. I, I, I want to love you more, Lord, and I want to love others more. More. Help me. Help me. This is who we are at Good Shepherd. We are a Christ-centered, a gospel-centered community. We are committed to the glory of God, to the word and ways of God, not just understanding his word, but living his word. And note this, in our uh, mission statement as a church, we are committed to promoting loving relationships. That doesn't say, just go be good people. Go do good things. No, it's all in the context of the expression of God's glory, the good news of the gospel, and the fruit on the, on the branches of our lives that show this love to those who need it. Promoting loving relationships. What's our goal? To make disciples of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. That's our goal. One of the ways this will take place is by the way we love. Let's pray. Lord, we give praise to you for your love for us. We are amazed and we will always be amazed that you have loved us this way, that you would choose to make us objects of your mercy. And Father, we were helpless. We were lost in our own sins. We were unable to to see, let alone enter the kingdom. We didn't want salvation. We didn't want forgiveness. We wanted everything else for us. But in your goodness and your love and the kindness and compassion, you moved toward us and you sent your Son to take our place, to die our death, to live the life that we have never lived and to, to, to pay the penalty for our sin, to take upon himself all of our offenses and sins and to pay them in full. 
We give praise to you for the good news of the gospel that, that sinners, self-focused people like us can be forgiven and, and, and made worshipers of the one and only God. We thank you that you can, can take us and change us and make us uh, instruments of your grace and mercy to, to go to the ends of the earth and to show your love to those who are hurting, to those in need. Lord, help us remember that there is no greater expression of your love than the speaking of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to find ways to meet tangible needs and then move to the good news of Christ, even this week, in our families, in our friendships, at work, and whoever you bring across our way, our neighbors, whatever interaction. Help us to grow in this kind of love, we pray. For your glory, for our joy, for the lost to know your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.